The Woj Pod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Hey guys, before we get started with today's show, I want to let you know about a couple more great ESPN podcasts. First, the Adam Schefter podcast with my good friend, Adam Schefter. You can hear new episodes anytime posted Monday through Wednesday. And of course, the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst and Brian and the Hoop Collective post their episodes Tuesday and Friday mornings, bright and early. The playoffs are coming, so be sure to check it out. You can follow Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective as well as the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. The NBA Play-In Tournament is happening May 18th through the 21st. I bet you've heard something about that on ESPN. It's a new exciting twist to determine who makes the playoffs in both the Eastern and Western conferences. The 7th through 10th place teams vying for the 7th and 8th spots. Some teams are currently playing to avoid the tournament. Others are desperately trying to get in like the Washington Wizards with Bradley Beal, Russell Westbrook. At the end of the regular season, the 7th and 8th place teams square off. The winner gets locked into the 7th seed. The loser plays the winner of the game between the 9th and 10th place teams. And of course, the winner of that game clinches the 8th seed. They get to play the 76ers and probably get waxed by them. But it's going to be dramatic. ESPN Radio and ESPN is your home for all the drama. Wednesday, May 19th, and Friday, May 21st. Hey guys, we're excited to bring the Woj Pod and the Low Post to you for a crossover virtual live show sponsored by Straight Talk Wireless. Hop on Zoom and join us for a live recording on Monday, May 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Zach and I are going to hit on everything. The regular season, looking forward to the playoffs and maybe even what free agency and the draft and the offseason may look like with Zach and I. We will we will get into it all. Registration is required and space is limited, but it's free to join. Head over to bit.ly slash woge and low, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash woge and low, all lowercase. You can submit your Q&A questions when you register to join us for our virtual live podcast on May 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Register now at bit.ly slash woge and low, all lowercase. We'll see you there. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with Celtic star Jason Tatum, the all-star, all-NBA forward. Jason, how are you? I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's, uh, I imagine, Jason, you are feeling, <laughs> when you sign up to be a franchise player in the NBA, you sign up for the good and the bad. And now with Jalen Brown, who had his surgery today, you know, you're just watching the Cavs the other night and watching teams, they are loading up on you now. You know, your team's at 500, you're in headed for that play-in game at seven um, or play-in tournament. What is it like, Jason, just now to – there is a lot on your shoulders, and, and I guess this is, this is what it means to be a franchise guy and say, hey, like, I've got to carry a big load here. Yeah, uh, this is really – this is really my first year um, dealing with this, um, you know, coming off 
last season, you know, signing my extension, uh, you know, of, you know, kind of being a guy and, you know, coming into the season, um, knowing that it was going to be unique in a lot of different ways, um, you know, and, and we were affected as well as other teams uh, with COVID and, you know, the injury bug. Um, so it's it's been a very unique year up and down. Um, and like you said, this is kind of what you sign up for um, being in this position. Um, it, it's, it's tough, um, but I think it's just part of it, part of uh, my growth. I think all the, the special ones, you know, kind of go through this at some point in their career of just trying to have to figure it out. You know, I wonder, and I think this is true all around the league, Jason, I wonder if people, teams, organizations, if there might be too much overreaction to the results this year, meaning you were in the conference finals last year, you had a shortened off season, others did, you've seen injuries, um, everything from the injuries to COVID. And listen, this team hasn't played, hasn't met the expectations I think any of you had. There's reasons, you can call them excuses, whatever. But do you wonder if this season was so unique that even like in Boston and the decisions you guys have to make going forward, that like maybe we shouldn't take too much from this and, and overreact given these are circumstances that are just unlike anything we, we've seen and, and, and things, might, things might go back to form a little bit more next year. Yeah, um, I think it's twofold because obviously we're not the we're not the only team um, that was in the bubble last year that has dealt with COVID um, or injuries and things like that. Um, everyone signed up for this season, and everyone knew what they were or kind of you know knew what they were signing up for. Um, and you know some teams are doing you know what what people expected, and you know teams like ourselves. And I mean, I'm sure there are other teams that haven't quite met everyone's expectations or even their own expectations throughout this season. Um, and I think there's just a lot that factors into that, um, you know, especially with the extremely short off season um, that a couple of, of the teams had coming from the bubble that went uh, deep into the playoffs and a quick turnaround. Um, and I, you can't really underestimate, you know, different guys' reactions to um, testing positive and how that affects them. Um, returning. Uh, so, yeah, it, I mean, it's easy to say, you know, don't put too much into the season. Uh, but at the same time, there are teams that are, you know, doing what they sought out to do. Um, but, you know, we're still just trying to figure it out. Jason, you, you mentioned COVID and, and guys who have had to deal with it. You have three weeks in the month of January, you were out and then the after effects have lingered and you've talked about the impact it's had on your body. As we sit here in the middle of um, May, months after you've returned to play, do you still feel the effects? Do you still wake up and go, my body, my breathing? It reminds me every day that I had COVID and I'm still recovering from it. Yeah. Uh, you know, people still ask me that to this day. And uh, I, the, the answer I give all the time is, uh, I, I do feel so much better than I guess the first game I came back and played from having it. Um, I do, I can't tell and notice that my breathing is much better than it was then. But I also tell people that it's, it's, it's hard to explain. It's hard to pinpoint, but 
I don't necessarily feel or breathe the same that I did before I had COVID. Like I know there is a difference in how, you know, my breathing is before I had, um, you know, the virus till now. And not to say that, and I know that, you know, I, I go out there and I still play and perform, uh, you know, but I just, I, I do tell people that I, I, it's hard to explain, but I just, I feel different, you know, I just breathe a little different than, you know, now than when I had the, before I had the virus. Jason, when you initially were dealing with that on the floor and you would come back to play, was it frightening to you? Is there a part of you as you're playing, you're also having to think about it and go, what's happening to my body? Yeah, it was, it was frightening at first. Um, it also was frustrating, you know, uh, trying to come back and play and just feeling restricted. Uh, you know, it's hard to play when you're, when you are out of breath or, you know, short winded. Um, it was hard to be play at an extremely high level. Like I know I'm like, I know I can. Uh, so I think that was just, you know, the, the toughest part, just trying to figure out like, you know, how long is this going to last? Am I ever going to be, you know, feel back to a hundred percent. Those were the thoughts that, you know, um, you know, were going through my mind as I was playing, as I was getting ready for games. And it, I was always thinking about it, um, you know, when I was getting ready to play. Your performance and your production since uh, since you came back post All-Star break, I mean, it's been, it's been remarkable. I mean, just since the All-Star break, 28 points a game, which is the most by a Celtic after the All-Star break since Larry Bird in 88. Uh, two fifty point two fifty point games this year. Only Steph and Bradley Beal had those. Here's one. I wonder if you can name the other three. Jason, three players have made more step back three pointers than you over the last two seasons. Who do you think those three would be? Uh, James Harden, uh, Luca. Two for two. Mm, Damian Lillard. Three for three. How much the, the, the work, and, and I think of the time you spent with, with Kobe um, in L.A., and, and it certainly was a part of his game. Uh, there are very few great scorers, great offensive players in the league who really haven't added that to their arsenal. Um, how about the work that has gone into, Jason, uh, uh, becoming – uh, you know, so deadly in that area. Yeah. Um, it's a, I, I, I still work on it today. It's an, it's a part of my craft. Um, it's just some, a part of something I do every day. Um, and it's become, you know, something that, you know, some would consider a go-to. Um, and I think once you put so much work into something and see it translate to the floor and just feel so, so comfortable with it. Um, you know, different guys do it different ways. I think for me, just uh, with my height, I know it, I know at any given point I can, you know, go to that and with the game on the line, late shot clock. Um, I just know that using that um, with, with my size, being able to get my shot off whenever I want, uh, you know, it's something I just feel extremely comfortable with. Jason, when you come into the league, typically players who are drafted as high as you are, they come to bad teams. They come to lottery teams. They don't see the playoffs for years. 
you come in the league and you're in the conference finals every year. How much does your game grow and develop when you get to play playoff games and you get to understand not just what it is to perform at a high level in the regular season and what what's going to work over 82 games, but to understand what's going to work in the playoffs when you go back into the gym. Was that at 19, 20, 21 years old, was that a great benefit to have when you go back in the summer and work? For sure. Uh, like you said, my, my rookie year, I got drafted to the Celtics and the year before they were the number one seed. And I wasn't quite sure how much I was going to play, just knowing the, the talent and the, the, the veteran guys that we had on that team. And uh, we made some trades. And then throughout the season, obviously, a couple guys got hurt. And at 19, um, you know, I was, you know, the leading scorer on our team going and leading us to the conference finals. Um, and, you know, one game away from going to the championship. And I think just those those moments, those experiences going on the road and, and, and winning a playoff game on the road, um, you know, just that feeling and knowing how hard it is to win in the playoffs. Uh, I think that was a, a huge benefit um, to my, you know, career so far. And, you know, as I've gotten older um, and even last season, um, you know, knowing I was, it was a different role than my first year. I was coming in knowing I was, you know, kind of the go-to guy and having to kind of lead us um, to try to get to the championship. And, you know, we fell short last season in the conference finals, but um, just kind of knowing what it takes uh, to, to try to get there. What was the one, was, was there one thing that maybe not surprised you, but was cemented in your thinking about advancing the postseason, getting your sh- winning in the playoffs and, and then what's required of you to do that when, when you went through it the first couple of times, was there an element of it that you thought, I didn't realize that would be so important, but, but you learned it quickly. My, my rookie year, um, understanding how, how important home court advantage can be. Um, we went to game seven in the finals and the Eastern conference finals. And we only won one road game that entire, uh, playoff run. We beat, Philly in game three in, in the semifinals. Um, and as I was going through it, I just, I didn't, you know, um, I didn't know how tough it was going to be on the road, how how much more physical the, the playoffs was than the regular season, how much more intense the crowd was going to be, um, how much, you know, the refs kind of let you play a little bit more um, in the playoffs. And, you know, to, Playing all those playoff games my first year, I think I played 19 um, and only winning one on the road. You know, I just remember looking back like, you know, it's, it's extremely, extremely hard. Um, each game is so, so vital. Right. And then we get into the bubble last year and none of that matters. Right. Like you didn't even know whether you were home or away in those games in in that environment. It was it was uh, when you thought of the advantage or disadvantage teams had it was it was all out the window. Yeah, um, and I, I think back to game three of the semis last year when we played Toronto. Um, you know, we're up two points with .5 seconds left, you know, thinking we about to go up 3-0. And then the whole series changed around when, you know, OG hit that three and let, led us to go to a game seven. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in the playoffs three times, and that playoff series was by far the toughest one that I've been a part of. Um you know, just every game fighting tooth and nail against those guys. Uh, you know, they had Kyle and 
Norman Powell and Fred Van Fleet, Siakam, you know, just a bunch of tough guys that, you know, knew how to win, knew how to fight, you know, great on defense. Um, you know, that was the toughest playoff series that, you know, I've been a part of. Yeah, and that was, I remember, those were the moments when you got in the playoffs. Doncic hit that shot in the first round, uh, OG shot. And when all of a sudden they make those shots and there's a celebration and it's just silence, there was nobody in there. That I remember for me, that's where you just were imagining what that would be like in an arena. And you're just hearing the, his teammates. It's just you and your teammates. It's To me, that's, I remember, last year where it hit. As a player, did you feel that in those moments where you're kind of ex- waiting for this explosion and everybody just walks off the court and goes in the locker room and it's over? Yeah, uh, I remember game seven against um, Toronto. You know, it went down to the wire and we and we ended up beating them. And I just remember how excited I was after the game, you know, on the court. And I remember I put my hands up and, like, looked into the crowd and it's like, oh, nobody's there. And it's just like, they we not got robbed of that, but, you know, just the that's part of the playoffs is having that, the crowd and feeding off that energy um, and, and celebrating with them after a big win. And, um, you know, that was that was tough not being able to have them there during those moments. Jason, when you think of playoff memories for you, your rookie year in Cleveland, you, you go to your locker, you pick up your phone, and you've got all these notifications, and you, you see Kobe has tweeted out, uh, he was doing details for us at ESPN then, and did a breakdown of you from the series. Like, when I when, when I think of playoff, when, when you think of playoff memories, does that moment sit with you? Like, it was not during a game, but, but is as vivid as, as some of the others. Um, what that meant to you and then what it led to? Yeah, um, I remember we were at home. We just had practice. It was after game one of the conference finals that we won. Um, and I came back and I and I just I could see myself sitting at my locker and just in awe. Um, you know, and I, I probably watched it 10 or, 10 or so times um, just sitting down in my locker before I went home. And, um, you know, I, that was one of the best feelings ever, um, just knowing how much that he meant to me and that he was breaking down my film and giving me constructive criticism and things that he saw. And, you know, going to my text message and see that I had a message for him from him, um, encouraging me and, you know, just letting, letting me know that, you know, once the season was over with and then when I was in L.A., he would love to meet with me and get in the gym. Um, you know, that meant the world to me. When you got to L.A., you waited till you landed, right? You went out to L.A. to, to do some stuff. You let him know you were going to be there for a while. What, what happened then? Yeah, uh, I remember I texted him when I landed. Say it was a Monday. Um, I landed. Say I landed at like three o'clock. He didn't text me back till like Friday at like like noon, and he was like, um, you know, hey, let's meet here tomorrow at this time. And I remember I texted him back within like the first thirty seconds, and uh, I was with, I was with one of my best friends. He was out there with me, and uh, and I remember I was like, yo, we got to wake up early tomorrow, like. I would I, I couldn't even go to sleep that night because I was just so anxious and so nervous, um, you know, to go meet with him. Finally, you know, I met him when I was a kid, but, you know, obviously he didn't know who I was. So I just knew this time was going to be different. Uh, and I met with him like two or three times before we actually went to the gym. You know, I went to his offices 
um, and, and things like that. And, you know, saw the books that he was working on. Uh, you know, those moments, you know, uh, I'm glad that I was able to share those moments, uh, obviously, before. Jason, when you went to Kobe's office and he was on to this other part of his life that he was really serious about, what do you remember noticing in there or him maybe, I don't know, kind of pointing out, hey, this is what I'm doing right now, what I'm working on. What, what do you remember about those moments before you got into the gym with him? Yeah, uh, you know, at his office and he was just kind of walking me through. I got to meet everyone that was there uh, and kind of see all the projects that he was working on. And you know, at the time he was um, you know, writing, I think it was two books or finishing one book and starting the next one. And I, I remember um, saying to myself, uh, like I could tell how kind of excited he was, you know, to to be sharing this with me, because um, I can only imagine how long it takes to to write a book or all the all the things that goes into it. And I could tell how you know passionate um, about what he was doing. I could tell how excited he was, and I just remember saying to myself, like, you know. It almost felt like he was talking about basketball, uh, but, you know, him explaining his next chapter, his life and what he was into um, was incredible to me. And then once you got into the gym, did it take a while before, like, did it feel a little out of body working one on one with him, like that you had to sort of get your focus on what you were doing? Because, like you said, you feel like you're a little kid in there, like he was the guy on your wall. And the guy you watched on TV, even what, what was that like once you guys started working um, in the gym together that summer? Yeah, it the, the first time it, it probably took me, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes or so to just kind of actually relax and be like, all right, I, you know, I'm doing what I did my whole life. I'm playing basketball because I remember just walking in the gym with him and sitting there and him showing me different things or, you know, I would get to do a move and he would stop me and, you know, tell me to put my pivot foot this way. And I was just, I've literally told myself, I was like, yo, I cannot believe like, this is the, this is the most surreal thing ever. Uh, Cause I could literally fast forward to rewind in my head back when I was five years old, running around with a Kobe Jersey on. And now I'm in a gym working with him. Uh, you know, every, everything just came back full circle for me. His hall of fame induction this weekend, I think it's going to be emotional for a lot of people. Michael Jordan introducing him. Um, wh- what do you imagine that's going to be like? And 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 just since he's been gone, um, how much you think about him? How much you reflect on not just what he meant to you, but just I don't think among your generation of players and 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 others, I. I think he's the most important. I don't know if he's the greatest player ever, but but I think for a couple generations, he's the most important player. Um, guys identified with him more than, than anyone else. What, what do you imagine that's going to be like this weekend? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm certain that, you know, everyone, at least in our field, you know, in basketball will be watching. Uh, obviously it's going to be emotional because um, you could only, Hope to imagine how it would have been, you know, if he was there uh, and, and listen to his stories and everyone that he would have, you know, like to acknowledge and thank. Uh, and you know, like you said, for me, 
I, I never really got to watch Michael Jordan play or any of the guys before. Um, you know, Kobe was the reason I, I started playing basketball. And I, I know a lot of guys around my age feel the same way um, and have the utmost, you know, respect for him, who he was and what he stood for. Um, you know, so I would for sure say hands down, you know, most important player in basketball. As, as I remember it, like Celtic fans were freaking out when you when they saw the pictures of you guys in the gym and then you were coming back. I think people thought you're going to go work with Kobe and like you're going to come back and not pass the ball to anybody anymore. <laughs> right. Like those are like the memes. And the, it's, it is funny how and I know it's a Celtic Laker thing, but not everybody handled that as well as mm-hmm. like you would just say you get a chance to work with Kobe. It was there was how did you find the reactions to that afterward? I mean, I thought I thought it was funny. Uh, you know, I think that's just part of social media. You can't take everything too serious. You know, people love to have fun with it. Um, I mean, I could have cared less what anybody said. I That was the best day of my life. So, uh, you know, that's all I was was thinking about, just replaying, um, you know, everything in my head, even after the fact. Jason, you, you were all – NBA last year, your numbers are even better this year. I mean, you're, you're you got career highs in points, rebounds, assists. Um, you know, we went through some of it, and and in the games, Jalen's been out almost 29 points uh, a game. It, just given what you've gone through, the, the short turnaround, COVID, and what that and what you had to come back from with your body. Does it feel even more impressive what you've been able to do this year than maybe even last year in that controlled environment of of the bubble and then the pre, you know, obviously the pre-pandemic season? Yeah, I, I like to think so. Um, and I know every everyone, first thing they're going to say is, well, we haven't met expectations as a team, um, which I understand. You know, I, I, I get that part. But, um, you know, for me, having, you know, went through COVID and it really like I was, I missed 18 days. So I think I missed four games because three or so were postponed. Um, And even after that, you know, it was, it was probably a month or so, maybe a little over a month. So like a month and a half where I was, I was just still trying to get back um, to close to being myself. And, uh, and like you said, we've, we've dealt with a lot of injuries, you know, I'm not sure how many, Game full games that myself, Kimba, JB, and Smart have all played together. I know it's not that many. Um, so dealing with with, with that, and um, you know, I I like to pride myself on always, you know, trying to be as available as I can. Um, I haven't missed many games in my career. Um, I, I always try to play whenever I can, and uh, and like you said, you know, individually, I'm having a much better season this year, and. I think it's been tougher just knowing that um, I know I now I know that other teams are, you know, I'm more of a, a focal point on the, uh, you know, on the scouting report. I, I'm seeing more double teams and blitzes and things like that. Uh, but, you know, still just trying to trying to figure it out um, as, as, as best as I can. And uh, it, it hasn't been easy, but, you know, this has just been a very unique season. Um and I, you know, like myself in the 
the rest of the Celtics fans, you know, I, you know, I wish our record was better, uh, but, you know, we still can try to turn this thing around. Jason, have you given much thought yet to whether you will want to play in the Olympics? Yeah, uh, I, I for sure thought thought about it. Um, you know, a chance to win a gold medal, represent your country on the biggest stage at such a young age would would mean the world. Uh, obviously, it's not ideal situations. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you can bring your family or anything like that. Uh, you know, haven't had much rest because I played it. I played in the FIBA. Uh, World Cup 2019, so kind of been going nonstop for about two years now. Um, so I, it's it's tough because obviously I would I would love to play. Uh, so it's still something I'm thinking about, but you know I, that's a hard opportunity to to pass up. Yeah, and I think some of the questions you raised are what a lot of elite players are thinking about, not just on the U.S. team but on the international teams. But you said. Probably not being able to bring your family, you know, quick turnaround. You know, your the off season's already going to be shorter, and the Olympics. You know, if your team's in the conference finals or finals, certainly you're going right there. Um, but th- there's certainly th- there's a lot more to consider, right? I mean, have you have you had conversations with some of your friends around the league who are in position, and is, is that does it feel like everybody's weighing those issues about? Um, whether it might just be too taxing to try to do it this year. Yeah, um, I think from the guys that I've talked to uh, that are thinking about it, we all kind of kind of in the same boat, um, just trying to weigh all the options. Um, you know, some other guys are in contract years, so I kind of understand, you know, where they're coming from. Um, you know, it just it's just been a unique last twelve months or so um, that kind of would normally make this decision extremely easy um, just makes it a little bit tougher well there's still uh, more basketball to be played for you Jason between now and uh, the Olympics a couple of regular season games left looks like the play-in which will be interesting to see how that um, you know certainly the the opportunity you guys will have to, to get in there and, and just win a game and advance into the postseason and and then we'll we'll get into the spring and like we talked about all NBA or all star this year probably all NBA here a second uh, straight year but but appreciate you taking the time out Jason good luck here the rest of the way hopefully we'll see you at the see you at the gym here soon yes sir appreciate you okay thanks Jason you can now stream the most MLB games on Directv without a satellite dish yes catch the clutch hits strikeouts grand slams web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Welcome back into the Woj Pod with the great Harvey Araton of the New York Times, a Kirk Gowdy Award winner in the Basketball Hall of Fame. 
best-selling author and uh, the author of a of a recent book called Our Last Season, a writer, a fan of friendship, which was published by Penguin Press and uh, fittingly enough built around the New York Knicks and Madison Square Garden and, and a writer-fan relationship that uh, spanned years and really speaks to now uh, kind of the relationship that is unique with the Knicks and their fans and, and, and has, has flourished again this year with the Knicks back into the playoffs. I want to get to the book in a minute, Harvey, but, but, but let's start with the Knicks and this season back in the playoffs, Harvey. And it, it feels like with Tom Thibodeau as coach and how this team plays, it feels like the Knicks reached back into the nineties, into the Pat Riley, Jeff Van Gundy era and found a formula that that has delivered them back to relevant to to relevance. Absolutely. Uh, well, which I mean, it it I, I've said this for a while now. After watching this team play across the season, even before I would say, you know, they had that nine game winning streak that really kind of, um, you know, kind of pushed them, uh, you know, ahead in the playoff race. Um, but they were playing. Uh, they, they they had definition, you know, they, they've lacked that for two decades, you know, since Jeff Van Gundy, you know, left left the building. And, you know, they, they, they were defined by their uh, ownership instability more than anything and the constant turnover. Yes, they did have that 54 win two round playoff season in 2013. But, you know, even that was... Uh, short-lived because there was turnover the, the next season. and um, But Tibbs has brought a kind of an old-school mentality that we did see in the 90s with both Riles and Jeff. And, you know, at least for the first year. But I, I wrote a column the other day in the Times uh, about how the Knicks almost seem perfectly constructed uh, for a pandemic season. And uh, by that, I meant that they had a coach uh, who was going to insist that they play and play hard every night without fans in the building. They had a uh, coach who demands a lot of players and a lot of and they had a lot of guys, you know, in the last years of their contracts who were going to be playing hard. They also did not have, you know, with the exception of Julius Randle, he's their star, but he's a breakout star. And so he was not going to be a guy who was engaging in a lot of load management. He wanted to play every night to prove that he is what he appears to be. Uh, so all these, all these conditions kind of, you know, fell into place. And uh, what you see is a team that kind of, um, you know, came out of nowhere. I mean, nobody expected this. And that, that's what's made it, I think, really sweet for Knicks fans is that, you know, they've suffered for so long. And there's sort of a little bit, little bit of a Jeremy Lin quality to this season. You know, he came out of nowhere. Nobody expected him to do what he did, even if it was just for, you know, whatever it was, a month. But there was a sheer joy in, like, look what we have. And, uh, and that's the feeling that you have today. You know, next year will be different because, you know, expectation will be part of the equation. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, there will be change. There always is. Uh, but for now, uh, Nick fans – 
uh, should enjoy this ride wherever it takes them. There's an underdog quality to the group. A few reclamation projects among their key people, you know, starting with Tom Thibodeau, who was not sure he was going to get another head coaching job, may not have gotten another head coaching job, if not for Leon Rose taking over the Knicks and their history and relationship and his belief that Tibbs would bring the things to it, he did. And Julius Randle, who had you know, essentially been cast aside in both L.A. and New Orleans uh, before coming to the Knicks and the great improvement he made. And then, you know, Derrick Rose coming in that trade from Detroit. And it's funny, you think about Harvey. At the time, the Knicks were thinking of doing the trade. There were some who said, ah, oh, he's going to get in the way of the development of Emmanuel quickly. And you were starting to see growth with him in his rookie year. Let him play. And, and you look back and you realize, you know, quickly wasn't ready to carry the load you were going to need if you wanted to be in the playoffs in advance. And uh, he's been uh, he's been really good. But Derrick Rose has been uh, remarkable and embraced that role. And, you know, there's a Parcell, Bill Parcell's quality to how Tibbs does it, bringing in a couple of his guys. Obviously, Derrick Rose, who's still very productive, one of the best six men in the league. You know, and then Taj Gibson, who's at the end of his career and, and was out of the league when the Knicks signed him and brought him in, but he had been both had been in Minnesota with him, both obviously in Chicago when they were, you know, when they had the best record in the East. And, you know, Bill Parcells would bring sort of his guys in with him in places and they sort of, uh, you know, lead the locker room, especially with young players, establish what uh, the bar is for them to reach playing for Tom Thibodeau. And, you know, to me, that's been an interesting dynamic to this Knicks team. Yeah, I think it be also begins, you know, from the very beginning. You know, you, you take over a team that hasn't won anything, that seems to be, um, you know, kind of spinning its wheels from season to season and administration to administration, coach to coach. And the natural tendency, I think, Woj, is that, okay, let's, you know, start over. Let's start over with a philosophy and we'll build around. We've got draft picks. You know, they, they, they have, I think, five number one picks over the next three years uh, because of the, the Porzingis trade. Let's start over. Let's build around R.G. Barrett and Mitchell Robinson and whatever the young talent surfaces. Uh, but I don't think – I think when you have a guy like Tibbs, and I think a, a, a key decision was made. I mean, he was pretty clear from the start. He wasn't here to, to embrace any five-year rebuilding plans. Uh, and I, and I think, you know, I've, I've had this discussion with, with coaches and, and people over the, over the decades, um, about what's the best way to help develop young talent. And I think Tibbs believes and, uh, rightfully so that the best, the best teaching environment is a winning environment. And so, you know, the guy, the idea that you're going to bring in Derek Rose, um, you know, and perhaps, you know, take shots away from the likes of, you know, quickly and even Barrett uh, and, and other young players. And, and quite frankly, I will say that I was one of those people who said, this is the perfect year for the Knicks to kind of not try to win games because um, there were no paying fans to please in the building, or at least few, none for the first half season, right? And 
So no pressure on the young players. The Knicks fans, for all their supposed sophistication, yes, it's a, it's a good basketball city, great basketball city. But there's, it's been historically a capricious garden crowd. You know, the first the booing coming at the first 10-0 opposition run. And I think, so my mindset was, okay, let's use this season to really get a lot of minutes for Barrett and Robinson and find out once and for all about Kevin Knox and Frank Milakina and let Toppin and quickly loose from the get-go. And, uh, you know, and, and I was wrong. I mean, you know, he, they've done a really good job. I'm, in the column I wrote the other day, I quoted Jeff Van Gundy as saying that they brought in all these guys, including the Tibbs loyalists, uh, Derek Rosen, and as you mentioned, Taj Gibson, all these guys on who are on one-year deals, uh, you know, the, the Bullocks and the, you know, uh, Nerlens Noels of the world, and they've all played hard. They've come to play every night, and you probably can't say that about the majority of teams in the NBA between those that have just basically, you know, gutted their rosters, others who have had to rest their players, and then dealing with the natural unpredictability of the COVID situation. The Knicks have a deep roster. It's they're not it's not great one to fifteen, but it's been very competitive, and I think that's been the secret to the success. And of course, you know, get Tibbs getting these guys to buy all buy in uh, has been uh, has just been terrific to watch. Yeah, and you know, listen, injuries are going to be a part of it any season for any team. Where the Knicks have really been fortunate in not losing key players for any real extended period of time was with COVID. Uh, they were you know, relatively unscathed with their roster and players about losing any swath of players. There, there were individual players that were out for a short time, um, but but Julius Randle played the whole season. And, uh, you know, that was a factor when you look around the East and what it did in Boston, uh, Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn could win almost no matter. They won no matter who they put out on the floor. But it certainly impacted Miami in the East and, and where they are in the standings. And, you know, for the Nets, or excuse me, for the Knicks, um, that was an important element. And when you think about the Knicks and the Nets, Harvey, and you've been covering and chronicling those two organizations for a long time in the region, the Nets obviously from New Jersey to Brooklyn now, while the Nets are – you know, very much more of the national story. They're the team that there's great curiosity about, and people certainly, the, the star power they have makes them a great national draw. The one thing that hasn't really changed around New York is that the Knicks are still the team that when you live here, that people are talking about, for better or worse, and it's been for better this year. But the Nets have never, even with this roster they put together, been able to change that dynamic. No, and, and, and I think, um, you know, I felt this for a long time. I, I think the Nets, we're, we're not going to see any kind of change in the dynamic of the Knicks-Nets dynamic, uh, I think, for a generation. Um, you know, you, you can't, there are, there are going to be, I, I know some people who, you know, got sick of the, the, all the controversy around the Garden and, and Dolan's interference through the years and were turned off and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to root for Nets. 
and and they liked that team a couple of years ago. That sort of like similar to this Knicks team, the one with D'Angelo Russell and Paris Levert, because again, they were they were basically starting from scratch, and 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 they were surprising, right? They made a nice run to the playoffs, uh, but uh, I, you know, it it the, the people are are the overwhelming majority of, of NBA fans in New York City and the, and the area, um, they've grown up with this. They've grown up as Knicks fans. Uh, it's interesting, as I, the other day, last week, I was talking to Peter Roby, who is um, uh, the interim athletic director at Dartmouth, and he is um, a close friend of, of Tibbs's. And, you know, they grew up together in New Britain, Connecticut. And, you know, uh, and, and I, th- I believe... Uh, Roby hired Tibbs at Harvard as an assistant uh, way back when I think it was in 85, somewhere around there. And, uh, and he was saying that, you know, Tibbs himself um, not only grew up a Knicks fan in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a town that, you know, borders the passions between New York and Boston. He grew up a Knicks fan, but he's old enough to have grown up a fan of those Knicks, you know, the old Knicks. Uh, you know, I think he was probably 12 years old when they won their first title in 70. Or, and, and so, um, you know, he's like the rest of us, you know, of a certain age. Uh, and then, you know, our children, you know, if they grew up, many children, if they grew up with their parents as Knicks fans, you know, they inherited that. I think in Brooklyn now, you're seeing the roots being laid. laid. You know, I mean, you have the, the you know, Barclays is a great arena. Uh, you have, you know, big time players now there that will take root with young people, very young people. And when they grow up, they will be Nets fans and there will be a completely different set of historical circumstances. But for now, you know, the Knicks could win, you know, 35, 40 games, uh, win a round in the playoffs or not. Um, and Knicks fans will be more than satisfied. And uh, the Nets, yes, will be a bigger national story, but won't be in New York for a long time. Harvey, your book, Our Last Season, A Writer, A Fan, A Friendship, there's a fan named Michelle Musler who sat courtside at the Garden for decades while you were chronicling the Knicks back through you know, the Riley years and Van Gundy years and all the way through. How did your friendship with her and getting to know her courtside at the Garden turn into a book? Well, Michelle was, you know, someone I met in the very early 80s, you know, back in the day when I was uh, uh, covering the Knicks for the New York Post. Um, You know, we were all down at courtside, you know, that ended, what, 15 years ago. Um, So, you know, Getting to know the people around, you know, in the lower bowl, around courtside, the fans, the, the, the team officials, the, the guy working the clock was just part of covering a team. I mean, you, you, you felt like part of a big extended family. And, you know, initially, you know, I tell this story that um, the friendship was really born out of self-interest because here's this woman uh, who's very friendly, very interesting, but she's sitting right behind the damn bench. And I'm an insecure, be- young beat writer. I was like 20, 
23, 24 years old, and I'm working for Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. So, and also I've got, you know, I've got the editors, you know, um, looking over my shoulder. I've got Pete Vesey looking over my shoulder as the NBA columnist. There was a lot of pressure to break stories to get on the back page. I had no sources. I was new on the beat. I might as well make friends with someone who's sitting right behind the bench and looking into the team huddle night after night. Um, little did I know that not only was, did Michelle have this prize location, but she also was a divorced mother of five who lived in Stanford, Connecticut, and, and had a terrible divorce, you know, had financial issues, and had to start a, a high-powered corporate career virtually from scratch. But she rebuilt her social life around the garden and somehow penetrated, you know, became sort of a garden insider. She got to know a lot of the players, the players' wives, the players' girlfriends, uh, the team officials. She hung around in the old bar, Charlie O's, after games. And she actually um, would hear things. And she became not only my eyes and ears behind the bench, but she became a really good source. I mean, she actually tipped me off on stories I wound up breaking, like, for instance, the Knicks signing Bernard King to, a, to an offer sheet uh, before they worked a trade with Golden State to bring him to New York in 1982. Uh, so there were things like that. And, but as the friendship developed, Woj, uh, she became, you know, first sort of like a career coach for me because she was a... Uh, a specialist in human resources and ultimately wound up running her own uh, executive training business, traveled all over the world for her work, uh, which set two or three VCRs to make sure that she wouldn't miss a Knicks game on TV, never missed a playoff game, uh, seldom missed a regular season game. And as the years went on and I got to know her family and she got to know my family um, she became even more than a career coach. She became kind of a life coach to me. I mean, she just was that wise family elder that I never really had in my own family because, you know, just the circumstances, there was nobody who really loved sports in my family. No one who was really, you know, read the newspapers on a regular basis, at least the sports sections. And, you know, so she just became this person who became an essential confidant in my life. and. As she, you know, reached the end of her life, um, you know, I was also simultaneously reaching the end of my full-time career at the, at the time, New York Times. And, you know, people always say, oh, you should write, a, write some kind of memoir, you know, about your career. And I never really thought of myself as a brand journalist. Uh, and if I was going to write anything that was sort of memoir-ish, I wanted to be able to tell a story. And, you know, I realized that, my relationship with her was something that was very unique that came out of my 40 years around Madison Square Garden. So that's how it became a book. It was, it was a way to talk a little bit about my career and about the, the sports writing business, but it was really kind of a, a love story um, about this incredible friendship that was, you know, added such, so much to my life. It's a remarkable book. You've had a remarkable career, Harvey, and, covered the NBA, especially at a time when, you know, there was so much change and growth. And, and to me, it really parallels even the relationship between a team and its fans. And we've seen in COVID with no fans in the building and no media 
in the locker room. It's going to be interesting to me to see what it all looks like moving forward. Locker room access, courtside access near the players for fans. The idea that there's actually fans leaning into a team's huddle. Uh, that era may be gone. Uh, we may not see it like that anymore. And and I think, you know, combination of the advent of social media and the ability for each side to go even in a virtual place, have access to each other and the acrimony resentment that it does cause with players who look on social media and see the fans, you know, I mean, I can tell you how many guys go in the locker room at halftime and, you know, players will tell you they've got teammates who are paralyzed at times who are going on their Twitter feed at halftime after they shoot two for 11 in the first half and are reading what people are saying about them and how it impacts them. And now fans coming back in the building after a very long time, we were in the bubble with nobody and, and slowly there's more fans in the arena, but it's a changing dynamic. And I, I do wonder what it's going to look like moving forward. I, I don't know if there's going to be anybody from uh, from this generation who's covering the league who um, is going to have a relationship with a fan who's that close to a team. I, I think that's, in, in a lot of ways, Harvey, uh, um, an era that's gone. Yeah, you know, it's uh, when when the book first came out, uh, a few months ago, uh, I did a piece for the Times that was sort of timed to its release, and the and, and the question I raised was, you know, what what is the future of courtside in the age of COVID? Uh, obviously, this was pre-vaccine. I think things are beginning to loosen up a little bit, uh, but yeah, I mean, a relationship like the one I had with Michelle and a lot of other people at the Garden. Um, over the years uh, is is not possible anymore uh, because again, you know, just from the standpoint of the media, uh, we're all upstairs in most places. Um, but, you know, courtside in the NBA uh, historically has been the most intimate place in sports. Also, you know, obviously the most expensive, um, but, you know, the feeling down there, you know, the, the the access you have to the to the game, the players, the the faces, the the expressions, everything that you you pick up on uh, during the course of a during the course of a, a, a hot playoff night um, is just it's incredible. And you know you've spent many a night in in, in under those conditions. Uh, I don't think the access to the locker rooms, things like that is coming back anytime soon. I, I think we were moving, even before COVID, I think we were moving into a more controlled kind of environment because I think sports, professional sports feels that they can reach fans, uh, consumers, um, uh, you know, different ways now. Uh, they don't need the middlemen as much as they used to. So social media, their own networks, uh, you know, websites, uh, all of that, um, even things like, you know, the Players' Tribune, uh, you know, it's created a completely different dynamic. I've always, you know, in my later years around the game, I always tried to to not be that guy 
to say back in my day, you know, because it is what it is. Change is inevitable. Uh, And great reporters like yourself, you know, figure out other ways to do the job. Uh, But I, I do, you know, I think it'll be very interesting over the next couple of seasons to see how quickly, even given with vaccinations, you can bring, you can recreate that courtside environment. Because let's face it, the whole courtside environment is about condensed frenzy, right? And that is the complete opposite of what all the epidemiologists would say, you know, that people should be rushing back to. Uh, I have noticed, you know, some people like Spike Lee back, back in arenas. I think he was in L.A. the other night when the Knicks played there. So, you know, maybe the lore of the game and, you know, what people I know, I always I think this entire season, I'm thinking to myself, you know, what would Michelle have done in this situation? She was a woman. She died, you know, weeks before her 82nd birthday. Um, She she loved being, you know, at the garden. Um, You know, I I don't obviously she wouldn't have been there this year. uh, But I think sometimes, you know, how quickly would she be? Uh, how eager would she be to rush back to that kind of situation? And I think, you know, everyone's going to have to make their own personal decision uh, about how how much is too risky. Uh, but, um, you know, it'll be a shame because the, the courtside environment around the NBA is like nothing else in sports. You know, it's, Harvey, I think about for me what an education it was every night to sit courtside, especially at the Garden with the Knicks when I worked at the Bergen record in New Jersey. And I mean, first of all, you would sit with the advanced scouts and the advanced scouts would get these courtside seats too. And they're there getting the play calls and evaluating personnel. And, and I can tell you there were nights where here's who I would be sitting with Eric Spolstra, who is the advanced scout in Miami, Lawrence Frank, the advanced scout, I think maybe in Vancouver, at that time, Frank Vogel was the advanced scout for the Celtics for a number of years. And it was, you know, these were guys who went from the video room to advanced scouting. And that, that's where you really learn the league. And those guys could learn. They got to watch coaches work up close and watch players and coaches interact. And really, it was a place where it fueled their their rocket ride up to head coaching and or front office and sitting next to you on pressure roll or Ian O'Connor. And then, you know, getting access to, you know, you really could write about what was happening on the floor. You, you know, you could hear the interaction between coach and player or players on the court going at it. And, you know, before the game, that's the whole part of it. You're down there talking to, front office executives, players, assistant coaches, scouts. And you walk out of there just in one night with an accumulation of understanding, knowledge, relationships. And that's been erased. It's gone now. And and that's certainly been lost in doing this job. And I don't know moving forward, again, how much of that is going to be there for for everyone. And, and so, you know, when you, when you think of, especially the garden. It always felt like the epicenter of, of everything. And so, um, yeah, I, I long for those days. I, I haven't been to a game this season. Uh, for me, there's not great value sitting up 
in the upper press level, not being able to go down and talk to anybody because of COVID restrictions. Um, you know, that'll probably change in the playoffs when we do studio shows and things on the road. But I miss it. But I, but more what I miss is, I guess, what it used to be and, and how much value there was in being there every night. Um, and and it's, it's, uh, it's sad. I know that uh, you mentioned before about the, you know, the, the, the relationships and the drama, the human drama. That was what appealed to Michelle the most, given who she was. She was not a person who could break down every Knicks play, although she recognized some of them, many of them. But I remember her, you know, it was, it was the little things. I remember her once saying to me um, about Anthony Mason, she said, she said, you know, the relationship with, between Anthony Mason and Pat Riley is fascinating to me. And I said, why? And she said, because when Riles is talking to him or yelling at him in the team huddle, Mason will never look him in the eye. He will never look straight at Pat Riley. And what that tells me is that a kid who grew up, you know, without a, a strong father figure in his life has trouble with male authority figures. And that explains to that better explains to me why he has ch- such trouble buying in, you know, in the way that all those other guys on the team do. And I thought, you know, it was those kinds of observations that you could only get by, by, by being so close, you know, and as far as reporting, I mean, you know, the, I'm still, you know, that one of the, one of the most amazing things I remember seeing courtside, one of the, 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 the Knicks-Bulls playoff games. It was the first year that Riley was there and, and you know, the, the Knicks team with X-Man and, and all those guys took him to seven games. And I think it was game five or game six at the Garden where John Starks tackled Scottie Pippen, uh, you know, and, and going down on a fast break. And it was a timeout and Scottie comes staggering back to the, to, the, to the Bulls bench. And I just happened to be sitting Right, literally, you know, right next to the Bulls bench on the other side of the press table from where we usually sat. And um, and Scotty's got, you know, blood oozing from his nose and he sits down and Phil gets in front of the team. And all of a sudden, Michael just comes out of nowhere and shoves Phil out of the way, puts his finger in Scotty's face and said, the next time we get the ball, you're going to shove it down their throats. And if you don't, you'll answer to me. And I was like, whoa. I mean, I was freaked out, you know. I'd never seen such controlled rage in my life and in the eyes of an athlete. And, you know, I was on deadline at night. That stuff went right into the column, right? So, you know, you can't get that sitting, you know, up in the auxiliary press area or whatever. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's made the job more difficult. Uh, it still can be done. Um, but again, being for a reporter, being part of that courtside atmosphere, uh, I, I understood why someone like Michelle loved being there, was willing to spend a good deal of her leisure income on Knicks tickets year after year after year, even in the in this century when there seldom was much of a return on it. Um, she just loved being part of it. The book is called Our Last Season, a writer, a fan, a friendship by the Hall of Fame writer Harvey Ariton. Penguin Press. It's a great Father's Day gift, graduation gift. Uh, it certainly transcends uh, basketball and transcends the Knicks. Uh, Harvey, it is always great catching up with you. Um, maybe I'll see you somewhere here in the playoffs around Barclays Center or 
or the garden, but uh, this was a lot of fun as always. Woj, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And congratulations to Ben. On nice graduation coming. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be a quiet house around here pretty soon. Yeah, excellent. That's all. <laughs> Thank you, Harv. All right, Woj, be good. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to both my guests today, Boston Celtics All-NBA forward Jason Tatum and best-selling author Harvey Aritan. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure also to listen to the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst, the Low Post with Zach Lowe, and the Adam Schefter podcast with, of course, Adam Schefter. We'll catch you soon. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.